This morning, we're going to spend a little time in the Word of God, and I pray that you will be blessed. Um, we uh, are going to start our message this morning from John, the 17th chapter. John, it's a good name, isn't it? <laughs> John, it's a good book, too. Let's pray together. Father in heaven. I want to thank you so much for sparing all of us here today and bringing us to church. We've come to worship you, to hear a word from you through your servant. Today I am that person. Next week it will be another person. But we pray that you will work through us and help us cleanse us, renew us, strengthen us, give us what we need that we can continue on this journey. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for all you do for us. Amen. Acts, the 17th chapter, is, is where we're going to start our, our message today. And You know, here Jesus had already shared with his disciples about the events that were soon to, to take place. One of the primary concerns that Jesus has, and we discover this by reading John 17, uh, verse 11. We can start there, but the point is that Jesus is concerned about a lot of things. But one thing in particular that he's concerned about is the oneness of his disciples the unity of his disciples. Not only those disciples that were there with him, but those disciples who would eventually come into the body of Christ through their testimony, which means even you and me. When we look at John 17, verse 11, we can see that Jesus here is talking about being one. And he says, now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be what? One, as we are one. And then when you go to verses 21 to 23, you will see again where Jesus talks about oneness one in us, one even as we are one, make perfect in one. Four different times Jesus prays for oneness, for unity of his disciples. He wants unity between them, and he wants unity of them with him and the Father. Jesus knew that their oneness of heart and mind was necessary. It was necessary for them to receive the Holy Spirit. He was aware of their petty differences, their striving for supremacy, and that wherever jealousy, envy, jostling for supremacy reigned, the Holy Spirit is withheld. in the upper room. And that's a very important place. The upper room. The upper chamber. 
The disciples overcame the barriers that separated them. All of their conflicts, all of that division and strife became subordinate to a larger mission. It was the mission of Christ. Those issues that they were having with one another became subordinate to the call of Christ. He had a larger mission for them, and that was to take the gospel to the world. That's what he wanted them to do. And it was in that upper room experience that prepared them to receive the Holy Spirit. In short, where there is no unity, there can be no revival. There can be no outpouring of the Holy Spirit. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out on his disciples. They had become unified in Christ's mission to the world. Well, what was it that brought this unity? They spent some time in that upper room going over the prophecies, discussing what had transpired with the life of Christ and their experience with Christ. He had told them to wait until the Father sends the Holy Spirit. And there they had a chance to, to talk about some of their differences, to more or less apologize, to repent of some of the things that they had said or done to one another. It's interesting. In Acts, the fourth chapter, Paul here is illustrated, rather, that these disciples who went out and spoke to the people, it says the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. One heart and one soul. I would say even one mind. One heart and one mind. And as a result of that, all things were held in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Think about this passage in Acts 4, 32 and 33. It links the disciples with having one heart and one soul with great power. If we want power, we need to have one heart and one mind in Christ. Just like the disciples in the upper chamber, in the upper room. Maybe we need to have that kind of experience. And then the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon us and we will be able to do a great work for the Lord. Maybe that's what's missing an upper room experience. The disciples, in their unselfish attitudes and generosity of spirit, prepared them to receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit's power for witnessing. They were generous. They were unselfish. Listen to what the Council for the Churches, page 98, the messenger of the Lord says this. He says, Notice that it was after the disciples had come into perfect unity when they were no longer striving for the highest place that the Spirit 
was poured out. They were of one accord. All differences had been put away. Apostle Paul used a, a powerful illustration when he talks about the body. In 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, and you can look at that. We're going to just talk about that for a few moments. The 12th chapter, verses 12 to 18 first. It says where he compares the, the human body with church members and, and how they're interrelated and interconnected and mutually dependent upon one another. Parts of the body are just like the members of the church. The arm, the leg, the eye, the feet. All different parts, but one body. All of these members form one body. All of us form one body. And it is the body of Christ. The body of of Christ. And when we read further, verses 18 to 26, God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? If the body was all an eye, what would the body be? If the body was all just hands, what would the body be? But it says that God had set the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he pleased. Look at Acts 2. Look at Acts 2. Because sometimes we think that we're the ones bringing people to Christ or bringing people into the church. But it tells us that God is the one. In Acts 2.47, it says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. God is the one who brings people into the church. God uses you and uses me and uses people to, to, to be a vessel, to be an instrument to help bring those people. But God's Holy Spirit working through us upon their hearts brings them to the church. God has set the members, each one of them, in the body, his body, just as he pleased. There are many members but one body, working as a whole. Think for a moment. If you had awakened and you said, okay, I'm awake. But you know, I want to get over to the other side of the room and pick up that dish that's over there. So hands, go get the dish. Hands, go get the dish. But the hands can't move. The hands need the, the feet to walk over to where the dish is to get the dish. So here we have the hands, the feet, the eyes, the head, the body working together. Now, if the physical body can work so harmoniously like this, why can't the human body, God's body, work like that? Is it possible? Is it possible? Yes, it is. Jesus prayed that they would be one. One in him and in the Father. 
to be one to be one God composed the body that there should be no schism in the body but that the members should have the same care for one another if one member is suffering we all suffer if one member is honored we all are honored and that's the way it should be but because of the jealousies and the striving for particular places of supremacy we have this friction sometimes even in the body of Christ sometimes we get sick in our physical bodies and we don't know exactly how, what we're going to do. What, do we take a tablet? Do we go to the doctor? Do we drink more uh, water? What, what do we do? Do we take charcoal? <laughs> what do we do? What do we do when there's an ailment in the spiritual body? What do we take? The early church members became intimately linked by a bond of loving unity. This example of a love that unifies was supposed to be a powerful argument for Christianity. A powerful argument for Christianity in a world of fractured relationships, power struggles, divisive schisms. The church was supposed to be an example of beauty and of power. The beauty of working together and supporting one another and the power of witnessing to the world. Jesus said, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The all-consuming passion of the New Testament church, their passion was something much larger than themselves. It was Christ's commission to take the gospel to the world. It absorbed their personal ambitions to take the gospel to the world. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that Jesus is coming back? Do you believe that he's coming back soon? Are you ready? Are you working? Are you waiting? You see, waiting is not just something where you're sitting and twiddling your thumbs. Working is involved in the work and the will of God. It is also coming to the point where we learn to love God's people. Even when they act unlovable. Even when they are not the way you think they should be. But the early church members, the early church members became absorbed with this notion of doing God's will to spread the gospel. 
because they had spent time doing the first order of business, and that was to take care of themselves, repenting, confessing, bonding together, realizing that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah, and that because he was the promised Messiah, he has come to do a special work. It wasn't about freeing them from the bondage of Rome. It was freeing them from the bondage of sin. The early church members were bonded together by a common belief, a common faith, that they were united with an urgent present truth message regarding the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus had fulfilled prophecy. He was the promised Messiah came at the appointed time that Daniel said he would come. They also not only just had a common belief and faith, but they had a common experience. They had an experience that the whole, where the Holy Spirit poured himself out upon them, and at Pentecost, thousands of people came into the church. But they could not have done that without having done the pre-work. The pre-work is coming together as one. You want great power? You want great power in your church? Then be one. Be one in Christ. Be one together. They had a common experience. They had common belief and faith and common experience. They had a common way of life because that experience dictated how they were going to live their lives. They were not in the, they were in the world, but not of the world. They cared for each other because they considered all things common. When someone needed something, they were there to help. They had a common mission. Go and make disciples. And they had a common message. The message of repentance. The message that Jesus is truly the Messiah. The message that he loves us and he's coming back for us was their common message of redemption. But see, the upper room experience changed everything. It changed everything for them. And an upper room experience will change everything for us. Because you know that there are some things there are some prejudices and some biases that we have even in the body of Christ. There are some preferences and people that we prefer perhaps more than others. And I'm saying that this because we've got to get over it. We've got to come together and be unified in Christ because in that manner, we will get the power to witness. We cannot have the, the full measure of the Holy Spirit without being unified as a body. We see that with the early church. Only when we come close to Jesus can we begin to see with new spiritual eyes. You need some new eyes today? You need the, the eyes of Jesus so that when you look at a brother or sister, you see that that person is a person that God has created and loves and wants to save. Now the question is, what are you doing to reach them for Christ? 
You see, this whole thing about oneness and unity cannot be achieved by just hoping for it, wishing for it. The early church got together and prayed. Ella Limnell, you always talk about how we need to pray as a church and we need to come together and pray and that we don't do it enough. Pray. The early church used to pray together. They did a lot of praying together. They did a lot of communicating with one another. In fact, they would use Matthew 18 to, so that when there were some kind of mm, something going awry, they would go to that person and they would work it out. They studied the Bible together, God's precious word. And then they were also ready to go out and witness together. But see, we've we got to get to the point where we're willing to pray and we're willing to study together and we're willing to, to allow God to have full dominion of our hearts. But we are distracted, brothers and sisters, by so many things. Let me share this thought with you. It comes from Testimonies, Volume 1. The Messenger of the Lord, Messenger of the Lord says this, As we approach the last crisis... It is of vital importance that harmony and unity exist among the Lord's instrumentalities. The world is filled with storm and war and variance, while he, the great apostate, seeks to unite his agents in warring against the truth. He will work to divide and scatter its advocates. The members of Christ's church have the power to thwart the purpose of the adversary of souls, at such a time as this, let them not be found at variance with one another or with any of the Lord's workers. Amidst the general discord, let there be one place where harmony and unity exist because the Bible is made the guide of life. We have a common belief. We have a common faith. We have a common experience. We have a common mission and a common message. But is it really common? Do we all share it? We may share in the common place where we come together to worship, but do we really have that common belief? Do we really have that common faith? She says in Selected Messages, the Messenger of the Lord, Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 159 and 160, this is what she says. We are coming to a time when more than ever before we shall need to press together to labor unitedly. In union there is strength. In discord and disunion there is only weakness. In our separation from one another we are separated from Christ. Oh, how many times when I, have seen, when I have seemed to be in the presence of God and holy angels, I have heard the angel's voice saying, press together, press together, press together. Do not let Satan cast his hellish shadow between brethren. Press together. In unity, there is strength. Now, I've been talking about unity, 
oneness. And I've been talking about it in relationship to the early church, using them as a model for us today. But the thought for this message came a week or so ago as we were approaching communion. You do know that we are going to be having communion here in a couple of weeks on the 25th. I call it a unity service because it's a service that allows us to make things right with each other and with God. It's a unifying service. And as I was preparing just to share some of the things that I've studied with you, uh, it, it really impacted me that this is God saying, come, make it right with me and make it right with your brother, your sister. First, the ordinance of humility, and then the Lord's Supper. You know, communion is one of the most important services in the church. It's like a miniature baptism. It's like because we, we, we go out and, and we interact with the world and, and, and we make mistakes here and there and whatnot, it's like a, another, it's a miniature cleansing. It's a time for cleansing. It's really a service that all of us should attend. The elders of the church have been discussing this whole idea of communion, open communion, and what it is, and what, and what significance does it have for us, even for our church. We are continuing our discussion, and I want to encourage you to begin to look into communion, the Lord's Supper. And what I didn't realize was that before they had the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, they, they had uh, what was called an agape feast. Then they had the Lord, then the Lord Jesus implemented the ordinance of humility. The ordinance of the Lord's Supper, a memorial to his great sacrifice. But it's more than that. It's designed for us to keep fresh in our minds the great work Jesus has done for us. Yes. It is a, 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 a service that we will be celebrating until the Lord comes again. And this time when he comes, he comes in power and glory. Every disciple is called upon to publicly participate. But you see, when we come to church and we talk and we giggle and we just dishonor God in such ways and we don't really take notes to sermons, and it doesn't matter who's preaching because God used a donkey once. And if God can use a donkey, he can use you. But you see, brothers and sisters, we're not, service, we're not serious about coming into God's house with reverence and appreciation for who he is. Because many of the things that we do and the attitudes that we have and that we bring into the church, we would not do it if God was physically here. But because he's not physically here, you think, and I think, we all think, that we can get away with some of the foolishness that we do in the house of God. 
I want to tell you today, God is not pleased when our hearts are not right. Because when our hearts and minds are not right, our actions are not right. Our attitude is not right. You know, you, you think you, you want to hear Paul and somebody wants to hear Apollos. <laughs> what you want to hear is the Word of God. And you want to hear the Word of God and then you want to take that Word of God and be like a good Berean and go home and study to see if what the man or woman was preaching about was true. And what does God have for you? It was the exalted Christ who stooped down, stooped to the humblest duty so that his people might not be misled by the selfishness which dwells in the natural heart. He wanted to set the right example of humility. And let me explain to you, because I didn't know all this, but I was reading from the Desire of Ages, and and I tell you, it's, it's quite interesting. After they had eaten the Passover meal, Jesus and the disciples were sitting around the table. And Jesus waited for a while to, to see what the disciples were going to do because as you well know, or probably know, that when you went to someone's house, that person would bring water to you to wash your feet. Or if they had a servant, the servant would wash your feet. Well, in that upper room, there was a pitcher, there was a basin, and there was a towel. And Jesus waited to see what the disciples were going to do. There was no servant in the room. And because of their pride, because of their pride, they sat there. Jesus, the majesty of heaven, became a servant. Took off his outer garment, put the towel on, and went to wash their feet as a servant would do. The disciples were shocked to see their master and lord do such a thing. And this is why Peter said, Lord, don't wash, don't wash, you can't wash my feet. And he says, well, if I don't wash your feet, Peter, you can't have anything to do with me. It's interesting. Jesus did not want this act of humility to be confused with pride. And that's what the disciples had. They had an attitude of pride. And sometimes we have that attitude of pride. We think that because of our name or because of our fame or because of our money or because of our education or because of our heritage or because of something that we are somebody special. And the only way we are special is because God has made us special. We're not special in and of ourselves. God has made us special. We are special because God has said, I love you. I made you. I created you. I have redeemed you. I, I, I want you to live with me forever and ever. And that's what makes us special. God makes us special. So now having washed the disciples' feet, 
He says, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. In these words, Christ was not merely enjoining or prescribing the practice of hospitality. Hospitality. What he was doing was the washing of the feet was meant more than removing the dust of travel. He was instituting a religious service. His act in this humiliating ceremony made it a consecrated ordinance. It is to be observed by his disciples that they might always keep in mind his lessons of humility and service. When you, when you, in two weeks from now, when you go down to, to do the ordinance of humility, I want you to think about Jesus deciding to get up from the table from where they were sitting and washing his disciples' feet when in reality they should have been washing his feet. I want you to think about the sacrifice that he has made. We need to keep in mind not only this lesson of humility and service, but we need to keep in mind that it is a time of preparation for the Lord's Supper. As long as we have pride, variance, strife for supremacy or are cherished in our hearts, we cannot have fellowship with Christ. We can think we have fellowship with Christ, but as long as envy and malice, supremacy, fighting for supremacy, and all of these things are going on in our minds and in our hearts, we are not in fellowship with Christ, brothers and sisters. We can come here and fellowship and worship but unless we are willing to humble ourselves, humble our hearts, give ourselves totally and completely to Jesus, we cannot have fellowship with him. We are not prepared to receive the communion of his body when we don't do the first work. So Jesus appointed the memorial of his humiliation to be a, to first observe because he knows that in humanity there is a disposition to esteem oneself higher than the other to work for self to seek the highest and the best the ordinance preceding the Lord's Supper is to clear away misunderstandings did I offend you brother did I offend you sister well let me make it right I am so sorry that I said or did something that, was, that, was, that, that upset you, that, that bothered you in the wrong way. I am so sorry. We're to make it right. And this work needs to be done before we go to the Lord's table. Amen? Are you going to do it? The ordinance preceding the Lord's Supper is to bring man out of his selfishness. You know, we are selfish people. You do know that, don't you? That humanity is very self-centered, very self-focused. Me, 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 I, 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 I. My, 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 my. That's us. And unless we allow Christ to come in and, 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 and eradicate all of that out of our lives and say, he, 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 Christ Jesus is the one who ruleth in me. down from the ladder of self-exaltation to the humility of heart that will lead us to serve our brother and our sister. 
it's a time, brothers and sisters, before we go to the Lord's table, it's a time for soul searching, conviction of sin, and the blessed assurance of sin forgiven. When we take that bread and that juice, representing the blood and the body of Christ, we are making a covenant, an agreement to the life of unselfish ministry. It's a life of unselfish ministry to one another and to the world, to the poor, to the helpless, to the uninformed. Those who have communed with Christ in the upper room, and we all need an upper room experience, will go forth to minister as he did, following his example of unselfish ministry. The communion service was not to be a, a, a season of sorrowing. That was not the purpose of the communion service. Nor was it to be a time to, to remember and lament our shortcomings. We are not to dwell upon the past religious experience, whether those experiences were elevating or not. We're not to recall differences between us and the brethren. The preparatory work, the preparatory work is to take care of all of that. The self-examination, the confession of sin, the reconciling of differences has all been done. And now, they come to the Lord's table to meet Christ. That's beautiful. It is beautiful what Christ has done by setting up this ordinance, this service, illustrating an opportunity for us to fulfill his prayer of oneness. The union and love between brother and brother and sister and sisters must be cemented and rendered eternal by the love of Jesus. And nothing less than the death of Christ could make his love effective for us. So brothers and sisters, today I just wanted to share with you what was going on in my mind and my heart is that we can't wait till March 25 and say, oh, by, or, or, or the week before and say, oh, by the way, next week is communion and not do the prep work for communion. We're going to be doing the ordinance of humility and we're going to be doing the Lord's Supper. And he says, all of us should be coming to that particular service. It's a cleansing time. It's a unifying time. You don't want to miss that. It's a wonderful occasion. It's not a time of sorrow. It's a time of rejoicing for what God has done for us and what he wants to do in us. He wants to make us one, brothers and sisters. Yes, he wants to make us one. <laughs> but we're so stubborn. We're so hard-headed. We're so distracted. He wants to make us one. Are you willing to be one? One with your brothers and sisters. One with God. Are you willing to be one? Father, we continue to come before your precious throne and to thank you for your loving kindness to us. We just ask, Lord, that you will help us because we need help. 
this is not something we can do on our own. And it doesn't matter how smart we think we are or how gifted we might think we are. It's, it's something that only you can do, and we need your help. And, and, and Lord, we, we know we've made mistakes in the past. There's always missteps here and missteps there. And, but we, we're praying, Lord, that you will bring us to that oneness that you prayed for long ago. That we might, in that, in that oneness, that we might have that one heart and one mind. And that we might, with power, proclaim your message to a dying world. To give this last warning to this dying world. Lord, we need you. And only you can help us accomplish what we need to do. So you know each one of us here. You know the needs in each family, in each person, each body. You know all about us. And so I pray that you will be with us. And that you will bless each one and each family who is represented here as well as that family. Thank you and praise you, God. We thank you so much. Amen.